Hi, everyone. I'd like to thank you all for the enthusiastic response to the podcast so far. Before we hear the first full-length episode, I wanted to say a few brief words about something I'm hoping to accomplish with these interviews. I've been teaching for long enough that I've had students who started lessons with me in elementary school, and now they are in college. For some students, when they get to the point where they are thinking about their future career prospects, they will ask me if I think that they can become professional musicians or if I think they should pursue music in college. This question is followed by an open and honest discussion, and even though my intention is good, I'm always left feeling like there has to be a better way to help that student. I think the best answer to that question is this podcast, a primary source where students can hear the biography and the steps taken by each working musician to arrive where they are today. At its core, that's what this is really about. Please share the podcast with anyone who might find it relevant or interesting. A final note, these interviews are basically unedited. Some episodes may contain language that is not appropriate for younger listeners. Welcome to a Musician's Life podcast. This podcast features interviews with a diverse group of musicians in different fields of the music industry, and my intent is that the audience will gain something from each guest's story. This episode features my conversation with Josh Junta. Josh is a New York-based professional drummer, recording engineer, and producer. He leads the New York collective Love Science Music and is currently collaborating with jazz great Eric Hardland and pianist James Francis on the project Stem Sounds. I sat down with Josh last summer at his apartment in the Ditmas Park neighborhood in Brooklyn. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe in the podcast app and leave a review. Also, please consider making a donation to this podcast on our homepage at www.andrewhalljones.com. You'll see a link for A Musician's Life. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please email me at amusiciansLifePodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at Musicians Life Pod. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram. Here's my conversation with Josh Junta. Well, Josh Junta, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing it. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, man. So let's start with some basic biographical info. Where'd you grow up? I'm from Hudson Valley in New York State. I grew up in a town called Goshen, New York. It's like mm-hmm. 60 miles northwest of New York City. Okay. And uh, were your parents musical at all? Uh, no, they weren't musicians, but my folks are super artistic Yeah, and avid music listeners and appreciators. So, yeah. So I feel like they're, they have musician ears and musician souls without actually having ever played anything. Right. And, and, you know, they, my father particularly has like an uncanny ability to like, to, to just understand music and like understand when it's working and when it's not. Yeah. So I, I feel like I got a lot from, from them. But actually, my grand—I have uh, musical musicians in um, in my deeper lineage, like my grandparents. My grandfather, on my mom, on my dad's side, um, was a violinist, and apparently a, a really good one. Mm. Um, but his parents and his generation uh, deterred him from pursuing music because back, you know, in the twenties yeah. or thirties, it like wasn't a thing you did sure. to make a living. And then I, I recently found out that my great grandfather, his father, was also a musician. Play piano, oh, okay. which was kind of like really cool to find out. Yeah, because uh, you know, because I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, it's 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 in there. It's in the genes. You it's know? weird how it skips a. I feel like in my family is the same way. Like my same deal. My parents didn't play at all, but but us. One of my, I guess, 
my grandmother's brother maybe played piano for like one of the big like the great big bands like the Woody Herman big band really? or something but like other than that it's like nobody in the in the family really did any music those recessive genes yeah it's weird <laughs> um but can you speak a little bit more about your father like I I met your father once or twice man and he's just like one of the coolest people I've ever met in my life you know <laughs> and uh I'm just a little bit just give a little background on like what he like about his time in New York and then about you know his life about him as a father as well um well I think my father and my mother I think they're kind of bonding point was that they both came from relatively conservative families uh-huh. and they both were kind of innately not conservative and like artistic people and kind of more open-minded and free-thinking mm-hmm. so they both kind of like strayed away from you know the religious and conservative background that they were raised in and so my father I actually have a great uncle who who has the same story and he was a science he was a he was an artist a visual artist and he was a science fiction artist mm-hmm. and and he was also kind of ostracized by his family because you know you in his generation you, you didn't pursue that you know mm-hmm. you, you instead you took up a trade you know um so so my father i think both my parents are super artistic and still to this day you know they're my father's 85 my mom is uh, almost 70 she's yeah she's 70 now and they both like every day you know either take art classes my dad is always sculpting and and painting and my mom is is she worked with clay and and my father used to write too so mm-hmm. so i kind of grew up with like uh my father i just remember writing was his his uh, like sole uh you know like pursuit all mm-hmm. throughout you know when i was like for as long as i can remember until i was about you know 16 or 17 mm-hmm. he he had a room just for writing and he was in there writing plays and and he wrote for newspapers too um, so I always kind of had that backdrop of right. of uh, of not only like them being creative, but they would also take us to, to New York City a lot since we lived so close to like, mm-hmm. see music. My dad introduced me to jazz and in the jazz clubs, and they'd always mm-hmm. be going to museums, um, and they took us to a lot of museums, and they were always just like that was the thing that they wanted to spend the time doing. Their yeah, time doing. You know? Very cool. And uh, so, uh, what was your first instrument you played? Drums. Drums. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and so when did you start playing drums? Like, when did you get your first set? Uh, sixth grade. So yeah. I was like 11, and it's funny because I, I played in the school band, yeah. fifth grade. And I remember specifically, like, going to a, like a, you know, a presentation by our school's music teacher. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he, like, had kids play all the instruments, and then he was trying to recruit fourth graders to play in the fifth grade band. Right. And I specifically remember thinking, like, seeing the drummer play and like seeing other people play and like thinking to myself like you know i really don't want to learn how to read music and like learn notes and learn all that stuff so i'm gonna play the drums all right there you go (laughs) and it all worked out the rest is history yeah uh so then so you got into the band you were playing in the band and uh what about through high school were you playing in the band and like the jazz band or anything at your high school yeah um and i think you know my high school program was like i think average you know not not amazing but not terrible um, I think like my music teachers were like good teachers, but not like incredible musicians, you mm-hmm. know, so they knew like they were good people and good teachers. So they, I don't think they light, lit any fires in me necessarily. But, mm-hmm. So I guess my real education came from playing in bands, right? you know, joining bands starting from sixth grade up. So um, around that time, like what artists were you interested in? Like middle school, early high school? Like, 
uh, alternative rock. Yeah. Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah. Nirvana. Uh huh. Um, yeah, kind of that realm of stuff. So, what were some of your favorite albums from that era? Like the classic albums from those bands, like Simon's yeah, Dream and Simon's uh, Dream. All the Nevermind stuff, yeah. In, in utero. Exactly. Stuff, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Uh, and then, who would you say was your first great teacher? Did you have a great teacher like in high school? Definitely. A drum teacher? Yeah, or any teacher, but... Yeah. I had a drum teacher named Roger Voss, who I still keep in touch with. Yeah. And he was the first person I had who... He was my third drum teacher. And I started with him probably when I was like 14. Um, and he was the first person to... To first of all, have like he was jazz trained. He actually studied with Joe Morello, oh, wow, okay. Dave Brubeck's drummer. Yeah. So he had like he had the rudiments together, and he had he was you know he had techniques together, and and he was just hungry himself. I remember him telling me like at that time he was probably like twenty eight or twenty nine, when I was you know fifteen. I remember him telling me that he had a job, he had a full time job, but he would wake up at five in the morning to practice on the pad before he went to work. Mm-hmm. Um. And I remember at the time I just didn't get that, you know. And then and then and then later on I I get the that type of drive and hustle, you know, to to improve your craft. Yeah. So, but he kind of like introduced me to jazz, introduced me to reading, and introduced me to like to like just he was the first person who pushed me on on the drum set because mm-hmm. I was already naturally good, but he he just pushed pushed my weaknesses, you know. Right. Yeah. How old do you think he was when you were working with him? He was like twenty eight when I met him. Yeah, and you know, I worked with them for maybe four or five years. So. Yeah, that kind of drive like always fascinates me. I I never saw the first time I saw that was with uh, Jordan Perlson, like at Ber- it was a great drummer I met when I was at Berkeley, and like I remember that he would get up early before his classes and play the pad for like a half an hour, forty five minutes every day, yeah, every day, awesome. and he would take the pad. He had like, I remember he lived with like two other guys, and he would take the pad to the end of the hall to the practice room and just sit in there. I remember him telling me a story one time that like he, like I think I was asking if he ever like drank Red Bull or drank coffee because I don't think he drinks anything like that. Uh-huh. And he said one time somebody came into the practice room or saw him in the practice room when he was asleep on his practice <laughs> bed, and then they gave him a Red Bull and he drank it. Then he was like up for the day. Some, Changed his life. Some version of that story, but uh, <laughs> but I even now like I I try to like like I have a son and it's it's practice time is so limited but also so fundamental i think as a teacher to like always continually improve your craft so mm-hmm. like this past year i've been getting up like early like five forty-five, like yeah. practicing on the pad that's where it's and at. it's you know it makes all the difference in the world you know yeah, i love that um yeah man so uh so what else from high school like did you see any concerts like when you were in high school that like really like left you with like a sense of like awe or like inspiration? Yeah, I saw. Uh, I remember Primus was my favorite band at the time, and and I got to see them probably in like two two thousand, and they played at Roseland Ballroom in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was cool because I was like super nerdy about their drummer Brain. We were just talking about yeah. Brain, and. I, they had they had a couple of live videos out at that time and I watched I watched all of them obsessively and then I got to see them live playing actually the same kit that I'd seen in a few of those videos yeah and, and he was just fierce man it, it was really like he was the first person I really heard that like his whole approach was just pocket and groove you know yeah and and the feel of what he played was just always so deep and and it was cool because he came into that band 
um, after another drummer who was kind of the opposite, who was like real chopsy and, and technical and always trying to do things that were like flashy. Mm-hmm. And his approach was just like, just that groove that just kicks you in the ass, you know? Right. Right. Cool. Uh, so moving into college, did you know that you were going to go into music in some level or were, were you entertaining other ideas? No, I knew from like 16 that I was going to do music. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what were there uh, like a, what schools were like your final choice schools that you had to decide from when you're making your choice of where you went to college? I mean, I really, the only place I wanted to go when I started applying was Berkeley College of Music yeah. in Boston where I met you. Yeah. Um, and I applied to two other schools just because like my parents thought I should have a safety. Sure. But I really had no interest in going to that. Yeah. So it was Berkeley. Yeah. And what did you major in at Berkeley? I did a dual major. I did performance, drum set performance, and music education. We are very similar in that way. I, I don't. Were you the only person with that major when you graduated? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I was too. I don't think yeah. I've, I think you're the only That's person I've road, ever man. met. Yeah, <laughs> I don't like you're the only person I've ever met that uh, also did that. Made that terrible decision. Because <laughs> really, like, it's doing music ed, like, and performances, like, you really can't do both right. very well. Right, exactly. You know, it's just like, I remember when it comes, push comes to shove, it's like, man, I could, like, pass my performance proficiencies on the drum set, but, like, you can't fake two octaves chromatic on a clarinet. For, you know what <laughs> right. I mean? Like, that, that, you gotta be shitting that That final clarinet. year of music ed was like, it was your priority to, oh, to get through that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so at Berkeley, like, so who were some of your most influential teachers at that time at Berkeley? Uh, Ian Froman. Yeah. He he uh, he was the most straightforward teacher I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Where he just didn't beat around the bush. You know, I remember I remember one time he he was also very uh, conceptual. So every time you walk into the room to play for a lesson, first thing he does is says let's hear some time he says he says let's hear you play and the first time he does it to you you're like well what do i play and he's like play time (laughs) so every lesson you know every week you show up and you just play and i remember one time doing that and and he'll kind of let you go until he feels like you've run your course and then he stops you and i remember one time being about a minute into it and he he literally got up from his seat and I was playing the ride cymbal. He grabbed the ride cymbal, like, really aggressively. And I stopped. And he goes, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I realized, and I just kind of sat there in shock. And I realized, it, was, I realized it, it wasn't a rhetorical question. Because I just sat there and I, I thought, I was like, oh, man. Yeah. But he was like, no, like, explain to me, what are you thinking right now? Like, what are you thinking? And he, like, wanted an answer for me. And I kind of fumbled and, yeah. and tried to explain, like, my thought process. And, yeah. then, and then he was like, okay, let's, let's break this down, you know? Right. So... You know, he was the least polite teacher, but also yeah. kind of the most effective. Yeah. So he he really, you know, he 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 set the bar. Yeah. I can remember really specifically in a lesson once when I early on at Berkeley with John Hazil. And he was like, all right, just sit down at the kit and just play some time. So we're playing some swing time. And then... He had this little like Grover kit in the in the room, and he 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 was like keep playing, and he like literally like pulled the bass drum completely out of reach <laughs> of my foot, and then like pulled the floor tom away and like removed every piece of the drum set except for the ride cymbal. He's like, okay, let's start with this. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And I was like, All right, fair enough. Uh, 
So what about uh, any other any students at Berkeley that maybe had a particular influence in, oh, or man, provided some inspiration? Literally to you? the first day I got to Berkeley, I met this guy, Paul, in the hallway. I forget his last name. He's he's an engineer now, in in uh, I think he lives in New York, um, and he was also a drummer. And like literally my first day at Berkeley, he was like, he said, "What do you play?" I said, "I play the drums." And he's like, "Okay, awesome, Kendrick Scott, baddest drummer at Berkeley." Like, go see him play. Mm-hmm. And I was like, all right. Yeah. And then the very next day, I walked down to the practice rooms and, and realized that Kendrick Scott lived in my, on my, hall, in my hallway. Yeah. And then he was down there practicing, like, you know, two weeks before school started, like, getting it, getting it done, yeah. you know? And, and still, he's one of my favorite drummers. I feel like he's, he's uh, you know, as we all predicted from school, that he, he, he has blown up in, like, the most in-demand jazz drummer in the world. Yeah. But his like depth of um, the vocabulary he has on the drums and the and the is just immense, you know. Yeah. I feel like he's one of the least repetitive drummers, you know, out there. He just has like such a wealth of uh, of stuff to pull from, and his, yeah. and his sound on the instrument is like unreal. You know? Yeah, yeah. He was I when I first I think I asked my first semester. He was he lived across the hall from me as well on one fifty, and like it was. I, he was such cut from a different cloth. I, re, I just remember like he he was he was probably the first time where I really saw somebody that had like a beautiful old Gretsch kit, and he would push that thing down the hallway and practice down and then on the floor. And he would never go to like the the the, the, pra, oh. the drum set practice rooms. He would like set up his own drums and practice there. And he had beautiful cymbals, you know, and uh, and he was just shedding like Alan Dawson stuff yep. like, so hard, and he was just so ahead of his time. I mean, it was. Yeah, incredible totally. inspiration. That's the shit. It's like somebody like that. Five years later, like five years after you graduate, you're like, oh, like, yeah. like now I'm doing like what he was doing when yeah. he was 18. You, you know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> and you're like, shit. I, I remember. I remember he was, and he did music ed, and him and uh, Walter Smith the third both were in my music ed class, and it was like, uh, so you do that thing where like you were you would um con- you would have to write a piece every week. Uh-huh. Remember this? You have to compose a piece of finale, and you bring it in, and then pass it out, and everybody would play their secondary yep. instruments. So I remember like conducting, and like Kendrick Scott's like playing clarinet, and Walter Smith is like playing trumpet or something. <laughs> it was it was bizarre. But those guys were on such a high level. Even then, I think by the end of my time at Berkeley, he had been playing with Terrence Blanchard, right. and was like already on the road doing stuff with him. It was you know just an amazing amazing drummer. Yeah. Um, so post Berkeley, moving into professional career, did you have a period uh, of transition where you moved from working a day job, um, or did you were you able to just go right into working as a professional musician? Like, let's talk about that transition a little bit. I mean, it, there was a few years, yeah, I probably I don't even know five or six years before I was really making a full time musician, uh, living as a musician. Yeah, and it was really like. When I first moved to New York, I moved, you know, immediately after college. I was, like, probably 22. Um, and I just really had no clue as far as how to make a living or how to get gigs or, like, how to take the path. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I just came here and just did, you know, and just connected with all my friends that I knew. And, and I think the first job I got uh, was playing drums for, like, kids, a kid's music class. It was a kid's education class. Mm-hmm. Um, so at least I was playing, you know, I was, I was, you know, but it wasn't like artistic or anything. Mm-hmm. I got to shed basically. Mm-hmm. But, but, um, and then I did like a few different odd jobs. I did, I didn't do a ton of non-musical jobs, but I did like a catering gig. 
I did, uh, yeah, some, I don't know. Sure. A little random stuff, but. Yeah. And so can you talk a little bit about the process of getting established in New York? And um, and now you work as on the studio side and as a drummer, but is the process different on each side, like on the studio side of getting established and then the process of getting established on the on the drum set side? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I've actually now make an, made the full transition from drumming to like, producing and engineering mm-hmm. um to the point where like i'm barely playing any gigs i have like two gigs on my calendar coming mm-hmm. up where bef- you know uh three years ago i was playing you know i don't know anywhere from one to five gigs a week you know that was like yeah. the focus and then the yeah. engineering between um so um yeah i mean in 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 the drumming world i'd say you get gigs by playing with musicians um so if you don't have any gigs, you wanna, you just wanna play with musicians. You know if that means setting up a, a just a, a session for fun to get together with people, or like mm-hmm. going to people's gigs, or um, yeah, or or sitting in at jam sessions. You know, you gotta get, you just gotta meet the people who are out there. That's mm-hmm. like the ticket. Um, and in the studio world, it, it comes from really working as an engineer or producer. I think that the seed of that is um is getting an internship at a studio if, if you want to mm-hmm. work in that realm that's kind of the the gateway um but nowadays i think a key factor in either world and in a lot of different industries is like um creating things and like putting stuff out you know where like even you like doing a podcast that's like a version of that like mm-hmm. you're putting out something that's mm-hmm. like has value you know mm-hmm. and if you want to produce then like you need to be making music and putting it out you mm-hmm. know if, and if you want to play then you need to have a project that you're like trying to book and that you're trying to record. So it, you want to be like on the proactive side of things, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and that goes true in, in drumming and in, or being a musician and in the studio world. It's like mm-hmm. about what you're, what you're trying to get and like, you know, planning and, and acting to get it. So what was your first like engineering gig you got in New York city? Um, the first thing I got, was my best friend was interning at a studio and then he asked me if I was interested in doing the same and mm-hmm. interning and I really had no um no plan to like get into the studio world but but I said yes because I said yes to the internship because I really wanted to be in the studio as a drummer because mm-hmm. I wanted to learn recording drums and like play on more session stuff and just be in the studio more as a musician um and then the the internship kind of led me to basically as an intern, you kind of do whatever the owner of the studio says, you know, he wants you to do, which could be a, a huge range of things depending on the studio. It could be like construction stuff or manual labor stuff, or it can be like uh, getting coffee for people, or it can be like working in sessions, or it can be wrapping cables, or it can be mopping. It can be all kinds of stuff. So, um, so the first engineering gig I got like really stemmed from that where um I was I was in a studio a few times a week and then um my friends would basically you know would got word of this and at some point somebody asked me to like record to mix their band you know to like mm-hmm. hey can we record at your studio I, it was actually at the time my sister's boyfriend had a band and like and they were like hey can we come to the studio and the owner of the studio was super cool and he said you know well you're not ready to engineer but like I trust you and um, you know, so yeah, you can use the space and, and, you know, 
whatever they can pay, you can use it like if you record late at night. So, so I recorded and I really, you know, I barely knew how to like run a session. I think I, I did it with my friend who helped me, mm-hmm. you know, run the setup. And then I had Pro Tools at home on my computer. Mm-hmm. And I basically, my plan was to like bring the project home. It was a four song EP and just, and just mix it until I thought it sounded good. And I, like, what do you mean by late at night? Like, they come in at, like, midnight or 1 or yeah, something? Yeah, I mean, the studio usually, the schedule is always different, but usually it kind of, the bookings, you know, leave by, like, 10 or 11 p.m. So, so literally for, like, I'd say two or three years, me and my, my friend I talked about, John Notar, um, he, he and I would go in on the off hours and, like, just record. So he played keys and I played drums. We'd, we'd show up at 11 when the, when the clients left and the engineer for the night took off. And we'd literally be in there from 11, you know, p.m. till 7 a.m. Just like, you know, I played drums to tracks that he wrote at home or we'd come mm-hmm. up with a track together. And we were just learning the ropes. You know, he was learning Pro Tools and, like, learning the studio flow. And I was more just, like, just checking it out and playing, you know. So that went on for how long? For two years? Uh, yeah, I'd say about two years, yeah. Um, and we just did that as often as we could. And at this point, I was still, like, lukewarm about the idea of, like, learning how to engineer. But... Mm-hmm. But we did that enough, I started to understand, like, what, what was happening in the process, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I was, you know, obviously I'd be a part of the sound check every time we did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'd kind of see him run Pro Tools, and I'd see him, like, doing things, you know, mixing things, EQing and compression, and I started to understand, like, not how to do it, but I started to understand why he was doing things that he was mm-hmm. doing. And then from there, and that's kind of, like, that gives you all you need to know to start mixing, not professionally, but you know, yeah. once you understand, like, oh, okay, I understand why. The reason you EQ is to make things sound clearer and less muddy and like more realistic. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay, so I think I can open up an EQ and just like mess around with it and yeah. hopefully make something sound. Better. Yeah. So that was kind of the the step into it, you know. And then basically, I got, you know, so I had that first friend client, and then I had a couple friend clients. And then at some point, you know, the studio owner was like, okay, you know, you're not like an engineer yet, but, but I want to like give you, I want to give you a chance here and I want to give you an opportunity. So he got like a random call of some client that probably the head engineer didn't want to work with because he was like super amateur or like crazy or something. And he called me. He was like, do you want to do the session? You know, I have the session for you. It's a two hour session. And of course I was excited to do it, you know. Um, and that was cool of him, you know, and I, I still to this day am thankful for for people like that and for yeah. him for like yeah. being you know recognizing that in me and being like here do this you know yeah so and then and then it just kind of snowballed from like the friends thing of like you know a, re- a friend tells a friend that you do this and then you get them in really cheap on the late night and they're down because you know it's a, it's a cheap recording and they don't really know that you don't don't know what the hell you're doing but it's okay because like they're in a great studio you know um and then and then the big turning point for me as far as like actually becoming an engineer was was honestly like uh, working on my own music because all, all, all along this process I had these ambitions of like I want to write music and I want to I have a sound in my head that I want to get out you know right um, and then at home mixing at home in Pro Tools and like just messing with plugins figuring out what stuff does right that was like where I really kind of honed my craft and like learned the ropes of like pro tools and and like how a mix works and how to what thing what you can do you know in, right in that interface you know and so um and then so let's get to where you are today so what is the studio you're working at today 
I work at Sweet Sounds, yeah. which is a studio on Broadway in Houston, in mm-hmm. Manhattan. And I'm the head engineer there. Mm-hmm. And we have two rooms there. There's an A room and a B room. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do all types of stuff. We do we do bands, voiceover, vocals, mixing, mastering, production. Yeah. So I do all that. And I also session drum on some stuff mm-hmm. when it comes up. Um, so I kind of do the full gamut of the, of the studio work. Awesome, man. So, and let's talk about your project, the original project, the Love Science Music. Yep. Um, can you talk about your concept for that, and then talk about what it actually is? Sure. Um, my concept for it initially was, um, it was really just like you know, my artistic voice. Like I said a minute ago, I had the sound in my head that I really wanted to to get out. Um, and for me, I feel like being a drummer, uh, I could only tap into that sound like in certain on certain occasions. Mm-hmm. And then with production and creating, you know, and mixing and writing a whole piece, I, I really felt just it was more expressive of like of my musical voice, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the catalyst for it is 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 really getting out the music in my head. Right. And then I, I wanted to put myself like in the driver's seat of being a producer. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't want to just be waiting for vocalists to hire me, hire me to produce or waiting for artists to hire me. So I thought, why don't I start a project and then I'll be writing music and then I'll um, pull in vocalists who I like and then they can write to my stuff or I can write with them. Right. Um, and then... So it's a it's a somewhat collaborative process with each vocalist because there's yeah. multiple vocalists. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. I, I, I try to... I use different vocalists on every song. Yeah. Because I, I, my writing, I just, I just write whatever I feel so it kind of can end up like in different you know genres around, around right. stylistically so yeah um cool so you did there's one full-length record yeah right? I, and then I, there's i did a full-length record in 2013 mm-hmm. and then uh since then last year in 2015 i did a single every month with a different vocalist awesome um and then the past year i've been doing like a lot of different stuff i did a lot of video content where i was filming myself making tracks like mm-hmm. filming myself play all the instruments and then putting it all together mm-hmm. so i was focusing on that and then i've been doing like a lot of production for for other artists too because like putting on my own music gets me work to produce other people's music um and so now i'm doing that and i'm also working on a new full-length record mm, of my cool. own so is that going to be under the same name yeah. Love science music. Yeah, excellent. It's. I feel like that project really like the really true reflection of you, and I feel like you don't ever hear that in music nowadays. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which I feel like is very like, authentic and cool. Cool. You know what I mean? I feel like you didn't compromise. Yeah, and that's my attitude towards it. Is like, like you know, I look, I view it as like I've created this like a it's like a refuge for me where where when I engineer for other artists at the studio or when I produce other artists' records. Like I'm, I'm serving their vision, you know. And yeah. I, I, I can impart a lot of uh, my, you know, my sound on that, and yeah. like I, I can make them better, you know, sound better. But, but I kind of like reserve this space for myself, you know. Like this is my car, and like, right. And like I just do whatever I want, and like, yeah. And sometimes it's some weird shit, you know. And like, but that's cool, and like, and I keep it like very open, and 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 I just really experiment with it, and mm. I do stuff that's just like. I just I just go for it, you know. Right. And 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 it's awesome, and that makes me a better engineer for like any other type of stuff I do. It just it just deepens my my toolkit, you know. Sure. So uh, what are what are your goals for the future, man? 
for you? I want to ultimately I want to I want to be doing more production and and maybe less engineering. Um, so basically, I, I want to be more like I want to create more music is what I'm saying. Right. Um, so if I can have my full musical existence be like you know as a producer and mm-hmm. working with like the artists that I really really love and who I really believe in mm-hmm. and also releasing my own music mm-hmm. that's that's a strong part of my vision and also I'm like very um, I'm very set on I want to start businesses too um, I like read a lot of books about entrepreneurship and 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 businesses and so yeah I want I want to I'm actually drafting right now a, a, an online course for for music production engineering mixing mastering mm. Um, and I want to I want to put that together in the next year. It's gonna take some time to to assemble it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I just feel like I really have that. I got bitten by that bug, and and I really feel like that's the next few years are hopefully gonna be informed by that. You know, right. like creating different businesses. Very so. cool, man. Um, so, do you have any financial principles that you've held on to that have helped you get to get get to where you are today? Um, you know, I've actually. I think recently in the past year, like started really taking finance really seriously mm-hmm. um, in the sense that, um, you know, I was basically, you know, I, I was lucky to inherit, uh, you know, some money from my grandparents, mm-hmm. um, which, which has helped me like get by when, when music times were, were slow or not paying, you know? Right. Um, and so really, I mean, Part of what what I just said about businesses, I think, is like actually the real key to like not only I think the future of our economy, where like the world economy is headed, and and where the U.S. economy is headed, but you know the the kind of the mentality of nine to five and like just relying on um, someone else to take care of 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 employment for you. I think right. I think is changing is is changing and and slowly becoming extinct you know yeah to the point where i think it's it's super important for people to like really be um creating things and creating ways to make money for themselves and creating like opportunities and and businesses and and their own income streams you know mm. um and that's kind of the revelation i've had recently is that that's like where the real freedom lies in yeah. in, in doing that you yeah. know so um so i guess you know i've taken saving a lot more seriously and I recently started like saving better and, and starting to invest. Um, I just started investing and reading about like the stock market, mm-hmm. which is new. And that's more of like a long-term plan because you're not going to like, you know, double your money in a year or anything doing that. Right. But like, yeah. yeah, that's like kind of a long-term thing. But sure. Um, yeah. Don't, don't lose money. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, that's the, the trick, man. <laughs> yeah. It's so interesting. That's such a, you know, for a freelancer, like I've worked as a freelancer my entire life. It's I've never gotten like every week of my professional career I get checks and cash from somebody. Yeah, and put them in an envelope. <laughs> and at the end of the week, I sit down and I count the money. Right. And it's like, you know, I take out fifteen percent for taxes and I save ten percent. Uh huh. And then I take out whatever I spent i have a budget and whatever i spent too much money on for like what coffee or beer or whatever i gotta pay for that and then uh-huh. i gotta pay for my child care and then i'm left with a number 
uh-huh. and that's that's what that's it symbol is. money right there you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah right but it's like uh the idea that like like whenever my wife she's like oh, i'm not feeling good i'm just gonna call out of call out of work she just doesn't, doesn't go. go to work I still gets paid. Still gets paid. it's like that blows my mind <laughs> <laughs> so you know I'll, yeah i'm definitely thinking about the, the the idea of revenue streams and online content and all those kind of things so totally um, and you know it's never been easier too like i think we live in a special time not that it's easy because it takes i think to actually get to the point where you're you have your own income streams is like a ridiculous amount of work but, yeah but it's like totally doable you know and 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 that's like just where it's at. I think that's where, like, the future I envision for myself as like what success is, and it doesn't even have to. It does not even necessarily like making you know six figures or making seven figures. It's right. not about that. It's more about having enough, um, and knowing what like you want and knowing what um, what you need. You know. Yeah. And then and then being cool with like, um, I mean, actually, I guess the real success to me is like you know freedom really yeah you know and that's like that's the ultimate goal and i think you know for me personally like freedom can be attained like i don't need a a million dollars a year to have freedom you know a lot of people think like you need that right but if you really i don't know that's you know an example is like one of the best things for me that that one of the things that makes me happiest is like being in nature you know hiking Mm -hmm. and camping and and that's a you know that's amazing passion to have because it's free you know Mm. other than like obviously if i'm out of town camping i'm not making money because i'm not working right. as a freelancer but but it's a lot cheaper than like you know flying airplanes or something you know so sure yeah <laughs> which is nothing wrong with that yeah but you know what I'm saying. and i also think that as a freelancer too it's like you know i think you work a lot but you also lead a pretty high quality daily life like i wake up in the morning i make coffee like i don't go to the office yeah you know especially i mean now i have my I take care of my son and that's great but before i had my son it's like i would just exercise like play drums all day uh-huh. write music it was it's yeah pressure, it's, it's, it's a great life you know it is a great life uh, yeah man so uh so just a couple more questions then we're gonna go eat some chicken actually we're gonna skip this one because we're gonna get to that chicken <laughs> <laughs> so last two questions man so have you ever found yourself on a gig that it was hard to imagine yourself playing as a kid or like a dream come true type of gig yeah uh a few of them um two come to mind one the biggest gig i've ever played was uh i was subbing for uh an indie rock band called rubble bucket which yeah. is from brooklyn and uh we did one gig we opened for mumford and sons mm-hmm. out at a, a fairground in some small city in ohio mm-hmm. and we played for like uh, 15,000 people. Yeah. So that was awesome. That's pretty cool, right? Yeah. That yeah. was like the biggest stage I ever played on. So that was a cool feeling. Um, and were then, you, were you like high up enough on the stage that like it didn't, it seemed like removed from the crowd? Somewhat? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. It was strange. It was just another gig. Like yeah. from, as far as the musician standpoint. Yeah. You know, and you're like thinking about the same things you always think about on a gig and then right. and you're like, whoa. That's a lot so of people. weird. <laughs> I feel like those big modern stages, like when you look at like videos of like Led Zeppelin playing at Madison Square Garden in the early '70s, or like these like classic rock shows, it was like it seems like the audience is so close to the stage, and then the band is like really connected with the audience. Whereas like, you know, like I just saw McCartney like last week, and it, the the stage is so high off the ground and so far from even the front rows. It's like uh-huh. I remember when we played. Uh, Jenny D played at Fenway and we were uh-huh. like up there looking out over all those people 
it was a huge gig, but it was also like very, it seemed like very removed from the audience. It's um, like they're watching TV. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. And what was the other one, man? So Mumford and Sons. The other one uh, actually hasn't happened yet. It's happening September 5th. I'm playing at the Blue Note in New York City with Eric Harland. Oh, wow. And, and a, a keys player named James Francis. Cool. And a trio? A trio, yeah. And it's crazy because Eric, through college, was like my favorite jazz drummer, my favorite drummer. Yeah. Um, and I never guessed I would actually work with him. And then I, in the past year, I started working with him as a producer. Um, and we've been collaborating a lot, writing a bunch of music, and I've mm. been producing and mixing a lot of their, their stuff. And then a couple months ago, you know, I had, I had mixed, I guess, seven or eight songs for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at one point he asked me, he's like, hey, can we, is there any way to do this stuff live? You know, can we translate this live? And, mm-hmm. and at first I was like, nope, <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. And I thought about it, I was like, well, wait a minute. You know, because I'd never, you know, thought about transferring the studio, what I do in the studio to like a live setting. Yeah. And then I thought about it and I did some research and I was like, well, actually, you can do a lot of this stuff, you know, with Ableton and with, uh, you know, live mixers and drum machines and right. and all that and samples. So, so I was like, yeah, actually, we can do that. So he's like, cool. And then and then I didn't hear anything for a week. And then he hits me up. and He's like, yeah, we're, I booked this at Blue Note. And I was like, oh, shit. OK, <laughs> now I got to figure out how to do this. <laughs> <laughs> you could be like yeah like i book in your perspective you're like yeah i booked us at the blue note chinese restaurant in uh fair right. <laughs> you, know, like, <laughs> you just picked up the phone that's awesome that's fantastic man he's he's an amazing drummer and i know uh you've been admiring him for years and uh totally yeah he's amazing uh and the last question is just i ask everybody do you have any post gig rituals or maybe for you it's post session rituals hmm. maybe just going to bed because it's in the morning <laughs> well post gig uh if i have a long drive i always listen to like an inspiring podcast yeah I actually i usually don't want to hear music at the end of like a, a long day especially a day in the studio i, I you know yeah I'm, it's weird i might go weeks without listening to music sometimes because yeah. if i'm working a lot um so after a session after sessions i like to read actually because mm-hmm. usually in new york i'm just getting on the train if i'm leaving the studio so I just immediately pull out whatever I'm reading and, yeah. and read because that's like sure. the perfect, uh, you know, change of, of scenery, you know. Mm-hmm. So. Right on, man. Well, Josh Junta, it's great to see you, man, and uh, thanks so much for doing this. This episode was produced and edited by me, Andrew Jones. The theme song was a collaboration between Matt Pendergast and myself. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe in the podcast app and leave a review. Also, please consider making a donation to this podcast on our homepage at www.andrewhalljones.com. You'll see a link for A Musician's Life. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please email me at amusicianslifepodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at MusicianLifePod. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening, and remember, time with music is time well spent.